This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's pledge season on Slate Podcasts. If you love working, you can help support it by joining Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. We'll be talking about it more later in the show. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season, uh, we're sitting down with the writer and a bunch of artists behind the comic book Batman, or in this episode, uh, a book called All-Star Batman, to learn a little bit about how their stories of the Dark Knight come together, from concept to execution. For this episode, we spoke with Dean White, a trained painter who has been coloring comic books for more than two decades, literally putting uh, all of those hues and shades uh, and and textures that don't come from the pencils uh, or the inks uh, or the other parts of the art process. He talks about the tools of the trade, the computers uh, he uses, uh, about how he uses colors as well to control our sense of the passage of time, and discusses the pleasure of collaborating with other talented artists and creators. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, White talks about how he's influenced by cinematography. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? Hi, my name's Dean White and I am a colorist or color artist for DC Comics. What does that entail? What does it mean to be a a colorist or, or color artist in the comic books industry? Well, uh, it's changed. Before, it used to be kind of a flat uh, color laid underneath the line art just to help separate. Um, In the last 10, 15 years, 20 years, it's really turned into a highly rendered painting uh, aspect. So the the important thing is, is that when I get a comic, I read the script and try to figure out where the emotional beats are along with the big action beats. And then I try to use color to enhance those moments. So it's almost, mm-hmm. I think of it like a soundtrack to a movie. So when we get to mm-hmm. exciting action, more action parts, I'll probably play a little bit more colorful. I'll do rendering and do a little more chaotic rendering to kind of uh, make those moments seem kind of more exciting. And when we get to more emotional moments, I'll change the color and rendering to kind of set that. So it's all about trying to enhance the story. It's, a lot of times the viewer, it's going to be subconscious, but you're trying mm-hmm. to enhance it and make it read so it's through color lighting and uh, rendering a lot of stuff that and in coloring nowadays you have a couple different schools you have a light almost flat coloring still going on and then you have a more highly rendered school Uh, and if you're a good colorist you can do both but usually i am hired for like the highly rendered almost painterly uh, comics we'll talk more about that in a second but before we we get to it um, you're working, you said you work for, for DC Comics. Uh, you're working on a book called All-Star Batman, I think, right? Yeah, well, I, I, f- I just finished up All-Star Batman. I did uh, one through five of All-Star Batman and then issue eight of All-Star Batman. Um, mm-hmm. 
And then I just finished up a crossover that DC's doing. It's called Metal, and it's called The Drowned. Uh, hmm. And then I'm also doing a Nightwing miniseries right now. Cool. So what is your background? Did you go to art school? Did you did you train for this work that you're doing today? Yeah, well, you know, from age four, I knew I either wanted to be an artist or a scientist. Uh, and I didn't have the brains for the science. So I, <laughs> I had the skill for the artist. <laughs> so same I except that school. I also didn't have the skill for being an artist. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to art school, uh, trained in illustration and fine arts. Um, actually, at 16, I got my first job uh, storyboarding for local uh, commercials um, mm-hmm. and have done uh, paintings, illustration for years, uh, and then done even storyboards for live action and some animation mm-hmm. stuff. So, Were you always interested in comics or was it just something that you found your way to through that other work? Oh, you know, comics Comics were fantastic for me. So when I was first going to first grade, uh, they had the, back in the dinosaur age, they had uh, the books uh, Dick and Jane Ran Up the Hill. <laughs> and uh, the, the teacher said I was dumb, basically, because I wasn't reading these books. My dad said, well, you're, you're just boring them. These, these things are boring. So he went out and bought me my first comics in first grade. Uh, uh-huh. And I got so in love with it that I just became a voracious reader. Huh. Uh, and then next thing I knew, I bought my first novel uh, because I had been learned how to read really well through comics, uh, which was an Isaac Asimov novel. Uh-huh. And next thing I knew, my reading level was like five grades above. So wow. comics was my gateway into reading and helped me to you know find that love and interest in reading and expanding one's mind through reading. What was your gateway to becoming a colorist for comics, though? How did that happen? Well, you know, actually, it's funny because I was at San Diego Comic-Con. I actually got my first job at San Diego Comic-Con. And I was going around and I was showing painted pages. So originally, I was uh, looking to do, uh, you know, sequential artwork myself, fully painted. And I got two job offers. One was from an editor who used to be at DC, actually, who unfortunately passed away by the name of Lou Stasis, who was mm-hmm. interested in me doing something called a, a Swamp Thing backup story where I was going to fully paint it. And then another was for this new company image that had started. And they wanted to come in and, and see, because I could paint so well, see if I could learn the computer. And they had me come in, and I'd never touched a computer before then. And next thing I know, it's, you know, 20-some-odd years later. It, it just kind of, you know, you kind of fell into it and just started having a blast because at that time, you were using, like, Photoshop 3 beta. Uh, we were one of the, some of the first people to be doing, you know, coloring with Photoshop on Mac and stuff like that. So just kind of got just sucked into it. That's interesting. So it was really through comics that you started doing more digital work uh you'd been doing oh yeah working with physical materials more before that oh yeah no i yeah you know i was trained with oils uh acrylics watercolor you know charcoal pencil you know ink all that stuff so i hadn't touched done anything on the computer until i walked in uh to image which was this uh, subset of image called top cow that used to be in santa monica uh, on the third street promenade and i walked in there and uh, sat down and they just said, okay, these are the tools. And I just approached it like I was painting. And mm-hmm. um, they came back like a half hour later and were, were impressed by everything. So I got hired and just, you know, went from there. Did that background as uh, a kind of highly trained um, painter, uh, 
did that influence your early digital work? Does it maybe even influence your digital work today? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm I'm old school this way. Like anyone who's going to get started in the arts, like I've taught for years too. Um, mm-hmm. And I when I teach, I tell everyone try to learn how to do everything by hand. Learn how to draw, paint, and sculpt by hand because the computer is just a tool. But when you have to learn how to do something by hand, you have to really commit to something. You can't do the Command Z to undo. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, no, photo, uh, painting really influenced all the digital work. And I, I approach everything I do like I'm painting. And, and mm. the, the, the knowledge of volume, you know, the roundness of something, mass, color, all that stuff. Hmm. So what, what's a typical day like for you? If we, can, if we can just talk the particulars for a moment. Do you work this as like a nine to five job? Uh, <laughs> no, no. Um, I try to, but you know, it depends on on the deadlines. You know, uh-huh. um, if I can, I like to be up about nine or ten at the computer working, uh, and then try to r- wrap around seven or eight. But a lot of times, you have a lot of the pencil and ink pages coming in late, so you have to do so much so quickly that it's going to entail entitle you to be staying up even later. Like just this last week, uh, I had to make sure I did a couple of all-nighters just to get stuff done because it had so many pages coming in. If I can read between the lines there, it's at least partially because other people's pages are are, are coming in late because other other artists aren't aren't always working 100% on schedule. <laughs> Is that fair to say? Well, no, I wouldn't say it's that. There's a lot of <clears> – it's tough when you work on monthly books because there's mm-hmm. – you, you, you set up like the optimum way it should work. And then, you know, someone gets sick. Um, there's power outage. One of the reasons I had to do it is we had a power outage here on Wednesday. Like they're working on our thing and I, on our power grid. And I knew I had to get my work done. Um, you know, I couldn't tell DC, you know, hey, sorry, my power is going to be out. So I had to stay up and do one of those all-nighters just for that. And then we had uh, another, the artist had a, a had a real serious situation to deal with that, that, uh, I, I, I would hold nothing against them. You know, anyone yeah, of course. would have of to course. deal with that. So it's just life, you know, life gets yeah. challenging. You get sick, you run a little bit slower and you, you still have to work. And, and that's the thing about being freelance. I mean, it's great that you get to be freelance or even if you're under contract with the company, it's great because you, we work out of our house, but at the same time, you know, we have to produce, and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if we have a cold, sick, or any or something else is going on. You still have to produce. So you do work out of a, a home office? Yeah. Yeah. I work out of uh, – it's actually just my living room. I have a okay. formal living room, and I have it set up so that I can be around for my kids because we have mm-hmm. uh, two kids that were homeschooling, and so I'm able to be around for them. That's great. That's awesome. So it's – is it just like a, a desk setup? I mean, can, can you describe your actual workspace to us? Uh, well, we have a a formal living room, uh, and that's where I'm set up. And it's just, you know, my workspaces, I have a a great desk that I highly recommend. It's called Geek Desk, and it's one of those electronic desks that go up and down. Um, and that's, you know, like a four foot wide, uh, desk. And I have a Cintiq set up to my iMac. Can can you just, what's a Cintiq for, for listeners who aren't artists? Uh, Cintiq is a, a screen that it looks like a regular computer screen, but you can actually draw on it and how much pressure you apply to the screen. It's just like drawing on paper or painting. You can apply pressure and it makes more digital paint come out. 
Uh, it's fantastic. Costs about the same amount. I mean, they run between two to three thousand just for a, a, a Cintiq screen. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, for what we do, it you can't you can't live without it. Mm-hmm. Do you have special tools for for creating kind of paint like effects on that, or do you just use a a kind of uh, standard? It's just stylus? more that it allows you to put your. It, it's it's it allows you to put this the pin right where you're drawing and, and, and actually work on it. You know, nowadays we have things like I have an iPad pro with the Apple pencil and I'm, I'm starting to be able to do some of my work on that as well. Hmm. Um, so it's almost like that, but imagine it's 24 inches big instead of, you know, I have the 12 inch iPad pro imagine it's 27 mm-hmm. to 24 inches bigger. So that's interesting. Cause that's actually similar to the size of, uh, of the pages that you're working from the, before they get digitized, I think. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. The, Usually this, the, the pages are 11 by 17. Yeah. 11 by 11 inches by 17 inches. Sorry. And then they get shrunk down to 10.5 by six or seven inches. Okay. And then do you blow that up when you're, when you're working on them on the tablet? Oh God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's actually the thing you have to be careful because you can get so blown up that you get lost in the details, but huh. You know, but the thing is, we're also going into the age of digital comics where people are blowing up the screens mm-hmm. and, and looking at them. You know, uh, digital comics, like for me, uh, I, digital comics on the iPad is just amazing because you got a fantastic screen. And especially with the 12 inch iPad Pro, I, I love looking at that stuff that big. It's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, generally speaking, you say you tried to get started around 10. Uh, nine or 10, how much of the day do you spend working? What are the rhythms of your mornings, your afternoons like? <sighs> you know, I, I generally work just, I, I'm usually going, you know, mm-hmm. once I sit down, it's, it's usually just going, take a quick lunch break and then go back to work and, and go, uh, unless, you know, my family needs me or, or I need to take care of something, but I'm, I'm usually working straight through. Mm-hmm. And and how long do you spend typically working on a given page? Is this, is a page an all day thing or or is it less? Oh yeah. Well, it, well, and this is the thing that you get to. You know, there's different styles and coloring. If you're doing more of a flat style, you there's a lot of people that go through and will do four pages a day, no problem, and it'll look fine. But because usually what they're hiring me for is uh, highly rendered, that takes a lot more time to not only put the color in, but then also you have to sit there and completely paint, model the form. So you're looking at like, where's the lighting coming from? You're setting up the lighting. Uh, and do you want to go naturalistic with this kind of lighting? Cause it's a, a, a location shot and you're setting up the, the mood of the location, um, day, night scene, or are you going for over dramatic because it's like, this is a real dramatic moment and you want to change the lighting to accompany that. So that takes a lot more time to do the highly rendered stuff because it's just more time just going in there and figuring out how someone draws. Um, Cause that's one of the things I found is that, you know, I've worked with a lot of different great artists and the key thing is to figure out how they draw and then to match my rendering to them. Because if I approach everyone the same way, mm-hmm. uh, it's not going to work because some people will build stuff up by boxes. Some are a little bit more sketchier uh, and so inevitably what I have, if I'm working with a new artist is I actually pull up their page and then I'll pull up a piece of paper and I'll just like kind of sketch like what I'm looking at their artwork and start trying to figure out 
how they're building up the forms and then how to make sure that the rendering works with it. Because the you, you never want, I never want my stuff to jump out. Hmm. I mean, you do, but you don't want it to look different. You want it to look like it's the whole art. When you get mm-hmm. done and someone looks at the comic, it should be the page looks awesome. You shouldn't look at one part and go, oh, this person did great, but this person dropped the ball. So you have to make sure it all syncs together real well. One of the issues that you uh, colored recently, um, this All-Star Batman number five had, I think, uh, one penciler, uh, but f- something like four different inkers working on it, right. each of whom have right. subtly different styles. Does does something like that, the, the, the different ways that people are inking uh, even one penciler's work oh, yeah. affect the choices you make throughout that issue? Well, it's it's funny because you, you I, I've... John Romita Jr. was the penciler, uh, and then we mm-hmm. had Danny Mickey, who was the, the series regular inker, uh, and then we had, helping out was uh, Richard Friend and Sandra Hope and Tom Palmer, and they all ink really differently, and that changes the pencil. So yeah, you you have to adjust from there. Um, mm-hmm. Anytime, and I've worked with John Romita Jr. for, I think Black Panther was our first comic book years ago. Um that's a terrific. And every book. time you get a new penciler with him, so I know I'm really, I mean, a new inker with him. I have to slightly change it because it, it changes his art, and that's what John yeah. wants. John wants someone to come in and bring art to the piece. John's a fantastic collaborator to work with. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, it's your working host, Jacob Brogan, and it is pledge season here at Slate. We want you to help support this show and other Slate podcasts uh, by joining Slate Plus, which you can do at slate.com slash working plus. Here to discuss it with me is Slate Plus editor, Gabe Roth. Hey, Jacob. Hi, Gabe. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. I am here again to talk to your listeners about Slate Plus. Uh, if, If working is a podcast that you value and that you enjoy, then we're asking you to step up and support it by becoming a Slate Plus member. And in return, then we give you a whole bunch of extra stuff. I'll say that Tom King, who we interviewed uh, earlier in the series that you're listening to, the writer of Batman, is a Slate Plus member. Uh, And I hope that you will follow in his footsteps so that you too can become a Batman writer. Be like Tom King. Be in a way like Batman. What are some of the the benefits that, that Tom King and or Batman received from Slate Plus. If they're podcast fans, which I know that both Tom King and Batman are podcast fans, they're getting their Slate podcasts uh, in versions with no ads whatsoever, uh, completely ad-free, including these pledge drive segments. They're not hearing me right now either. Yeah, Batman's not listening to me now. Um, And they're getting extended versions of their favorite shows, including this one. Um, I know when you tape these interviews, then there's some material uh, that's reserved only for the Slate Plus members that's uh, that's not in the the regular download version. Um, They also get transcripts of this show. If uh, you, if you're a working fan, 
um, you will find that these uh, meaty and and deep interviews with folks from all different walks of life um, make great reading as well as great listening. Those are only for Slate Plus members as well. Um, so extended ad-free versions of working and other great Slate podcasts. There are also podcast miniseries that are exclusively for Slate Plus members. Our Slate Academy series on the history of American slavery, on fascism, on the United States of debt. Uh, those are all for Slate Plus members only. Uh, we've got more coming out for the rest of the year that I, I can't name right now, but that uh, I am tremendously excited about. And, and if you want to listen to those podcasts, you can or, or, or take advantage of any of the other benefits. Uh, you can sign up at slate.com slash working plus so that that working uh, will get some of the some of the credit, some of the acknowledgement for uh, for pulling you in, which would mean a lot to us. You can also get the Slate Plus newsletter, which comes out on Fridays and occasionally may include recipes that I've cooked recently. So if you're interested in what I am cooking and eating, you can subscribe to that newsletter by becoming a member of Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. Join up. Sign up for Slate Plus, find out how to eat like Jacob Brogan, uh, and so much more. So much All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Gabe. So let's talk about the way that goes generally. I mean, what form is a page in when it first comes to you? Do you just get an email that has a a big old inked page in it, or, or what's the story there? Well, a lot of times what I'll get is I'll get the um, – script uh, and I have I usually don't have any say on the script you know I'll get the script and then as the pencil is working on it a lot of times they'll send jpegs of the pencils that they're working on so I can see um, what the page is going to look like sometimes mm-hmm. I work with people who just do pencils and then I have to work off their pencils um, mm-hmm. and then other people like with John Romita Jr. and All-Star Batman he pencils and then he has an anchor come through um, and so I'll see his pencils and then the anchor will finish the the page and then they'll send it to me from there. And so then I have, so I have a page and it's black and white and you're looking at something, let's say Batman in the middle of a field and you have, you're looking at going, is this day nighttime shot? What do I need to do to make this really stand out? And also, is this a moment that should stand out? Um, because in comics, because we control time by how long you stay there. It's not like movies where, Movies is a lot more passive. You're sitting as an audience member and the director's controlling the time with comics. The viewer gets to look at the panel and decide how quickly they they go through the panels and flip the page. So you're trying to decide how much detail do I want to put into this panel? And the artist is deciding this. The inker's deciding this. And, and the color's also deciding this. And so you have to look at that panel. I got Batman in a field. Is this a quick moment? So it's supposed to go by real quickly. So the person just reads it in one second. Or are we supposed to feel like this is a moment where he's contemplating, thinking something. So I need to then change everything, change the color, the rendering, everything to get that moment across and make the reader stay longer on there. And then you have to do that through the whole page and kind of figure out the, the balance of the page. Because not only do you have that one panel, you also have five or six other panels that have to go along with it. And you can't have every panel can't have the same uh, intensity to it. You kind of, there has to be a kind of a rhythm to it that goes up and down. So the artists and inker have gone through there. They've thought about this. The writers thought about this. And then usually the colorist is the final artistic process that the book goes through, where there's they're really where you can really change the artwork radically. Um, yeah. Because I've had scenes that have come to me that were drawn as daytime and I had to make them nighttime scenes and 
you know, all that kind of stuff or, or the moods change, or I've had to redraw stuff. So it's, it's taking that black and white page and then going, what is it? Is this day? Is this night? What color is it? And so on. What, what program are you using to manipulate or work with them as you're, as you're first starting to make these choices? Uh, you know, mostly it's been Adobe Photoshop for years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that has been, they kind of have a monopoly on, on the, on the software on that side. So mm-hmm. mostly been using that lately. Uh, I've been using Procreate on the iPad uh, to do some of my work on that. And that's been fantastic as well. Highly recommend Procreate on the iPad. Fantastic. What about your interaction with the script as all of this is going on? You said you read through it. You get a sense of the emotional beats of the rhythms of the story, where it's headed and such. Um, but are you also constantly referring back to it uh, as you work or is it just once through and then then you're doing your job? You know, it depends on the script. Some scripts you you really need to be paying attention to because it's a it's a there's a density to it and other ones it's more of like, you know, Batman lands in the field and he's running and he has to escape this person. And, and you know, at this moment he's having a flashback and he's remembering. And you, you can kind of read those real quickly. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it depends on the script. But I, I you know, I, I need it there to understand what the, the writer's intent was. Uh, mm-hmm. At least for me that's really important because, you know, it, it starts with the writer coming up with the stuff. And you want to make sure that um, the whole team's happy. So in, that's the other thing. When I finish a page, I send it to the whole team so they can then see it. And, you know, from writer, inker, uh, penciler, editor, uh, letterer, and I try to include everyone so they can all see it and make their comments. Usually the, the, the letterer's work is not on the page at the time that you're, uh, you're working on it, right? Is that – my understanding is that well, that sometimes happens simultaneously. Yeah, you know, it's it, – it seems like nowadays the letterer is actually doing a lot of his stuff on the black and white. So like when the inker's finished, a lot of times they'll send the, that all off to the letter and he'll do his initial letter placement uh, on the black and white. And then they composite everything once the colors are done. I don't always see uh, the lettering, but that's why I try to include it to the letter when I can so they can see what colors I'm picking and stuff like that. Fascinating. So, uh, what kind of feedback do you get when you when you send uh, those those colored pages along? Are are they ever like are the other members of the team ever like scrap it, start all over, or or uh, or is it more of a back and forth that happens? Uh, you know, everyone's had scrap it. I, I did uh-huh. a double page spread on the, on on this one book, and I thought it was great, and everyone else hated it. And it was well, scrap it. Uh, and we talked through where the miscommunication went through and we understood where it was and I had to redo it. Um, but I'd say that's a real, for me at least, that's a, that's really rare. Most of the time, I've been doing it for a while, they usually know what they want. Um, so I think most of the time if I gain notes, it's like hair, eye color, you know, like just consistent stuff. Uh, most of the time I've been very, very lucky I get to work with great people and they tend to give me a lot of leeway and, mm-hmm. and give me a lot of respect on what I do. So so I was wondering about that. I mean, how much freedom do you have when you're deciding how things should look? Well, I, I within my field, I have complete freedom pretty much. It's, uh, you know, other than like, you know, you need to know if it's a nighttime scene um, a daytime scene. You have to do that. Like you can't switch it just just to be 
just to have fun with it. You need to switch. Course, yeah. You need to adhere to that. But, you know, no one's going in there telling me how to render. No one's going in there telling me how to, you know, what colors to pick. So I have complete freedom in that. Uh, and usually, like I said, it's I've been in the field for a while. So when they hire me, you know, they usually know what they want. We'll talk about, like, what kind of mood you want for the piece. Um, so for All-Star Batman, it was kind of a high-octane, kind of Quentin Tarantino kind of feel to it. Um and so you want to get that through in the colors. So you you want to, you don't want to go through and make everything somber because that's going to fight with the the intent of the pieces. But yeah, freedom. I'm I'm pretty lucky. I don't have much much uh, control over me in that way. One thing I noticed when I was uh, paging through an issue of of All Star Batman uh, issue number five uh, was that um, there are sometimes these almost impressionistic details that that. Uh, sneak into your coloring. There'll be, you know, sort of swashes of uh, little lines of aquamarine that trace across Batman's mask in one scene, or or this incredible shading, uh, subtle um, shift of colors across the clouds as as our heroes are leaping off of a waterfall. How much right. do you spend thinking about those kind of um, really? I want to say eccentric, but that's not quite the right word. But those those really particular details uh, that you're introducing onto these pages. Well, usually what I'll do is um, I'll usually set up like the page, and I'll pick the whole panel, and I have a couple different Photoshop brushes I created that are kind of um, kind of loose and sketchy brushes. And what I'll do is I'll go through and I'll pick the panel, and I'll just paint quickly see i call it painting i'll paint quickly mm -hmm. on the panel and i just kind of block out a big color for the whole panel and i go through the whole page and i do that so i'll block in the whole page with color and kind of building up my color how i want color to move around the stuff and then i start going into detail and you know the hardest part is usually that initial block not the hardest part but the part where you're really thinking about is that initial part where you're laying in the big colors for the panel and how it works for the next panel and how it works for the next page um, and then when you start fine tuning it, you're just kind of feeding off what you did before. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a process, you know, you, you think about it and go, yeah, I really want to have this vibrate here, or I want this to, to slow down a little bit more. And I want a sense of these clouds to have this kind of etching style. So I'll go through and I draw all these repetitive lines over and over again, um, through them. And, you know, it's hard to say initially why i chose that it was just more like i wanted this kind of feeling to it and issue five is kind of the last issue and we were under a really stressed deadline so trying to get that out in time was just super challenging um so we didn't quite you know it was the end so we kind of pulled back and we made it a little more action uh feel to it than the other issues um many of the characters that you're working with have these really iconic costumes um often in bold primary colors, uh, probably partially as an effect of the way comics colors used to work. Um, do those longstanding age-old design choices place limitations on what you can do as a colorist today ever? Uh, no, I call it challenges. But, you know, like if you got uh, Two-Face and you're going to put him in a giant red costume and you have Batman who's black and he has a yellow um and you have another color, another uh, character who's green. Usually, what I'll do is I'll put those colors in. But you know, when I'm doing that initial scene where I'm painting in the whole panel, I have those reds affected by the scene around it. So if it's a blue atmosphere and I'm popping someone in there who has a red outfit, 
I'm going to tint all that red and paint a lot of blues into that red, same into the greens and same into the black. So it's really affected by the color uh, of the panel of, of the kind of, you know, what kind of mood I'm trying to get across in that. Interesting. So, so you're kind of bringing the world of the panel into the design of the characters in those moments, fusing them together a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Well, because if you just do them just this, you know, like if I just did them like the straight color that they that they were chosen, and then I do this really realistic scene, sometimes they're going to really stand out in a way that doesn't fit in the environment. You know, it's not mm. going to work. So, you know, taking, you know, you might have a scene that's red. Let's say if we have a hot red scene, and all of a sudden you put two faces red suit in there, he's going to blend into the background. So what are you going to do? Well, you want him to stand out. So maybe because he's in a red, yellow atmosphere, maybe that light's behind him blowing him out. So maybe it's going to make him all darker. So you tone everything darker. So he stands out against like a dark against light. Um, Mm -hmm. And if he's like in a blue environment, let's say he's around a bunch of waves and mist. uh, If all of a sudden I had him just straight red, he's going to jump out and not look like he's part of the environment. So I'm going to have all these like blues and stuff going through his red. So he feels like he's really married and he's in that environment. So it's really about bringing the whole world of the comic uh, together, making sure that nothing stands out in the wrong ways. Uh, yeah, and, and it's you know I have this weird process that when I get a page, that usually the first thing I do is I kind of look at it. Imagine I'm a landscape painter, or uh, and I'm what would the natural light of this be? And I got this three process. It's kind of funny because I'll look at it and go, if I was there in real life. If I was out in this wheat field, the Batman's out in this wheat field, or he's on the riverboat uh, going to jump off the the end of this waterfall. If I was there, what would the lighting look like? And I kind of imagine, try to imagine what it looks like naturalistic. And then once I get to that phase, you know, I'll kind of get a feel for what the environment. Then I, I kind of take it and I move to a second stage. And I think, okay, if I was actually a stage play, I need to change the lighting around. So the, the light's just right on Batman here. Um and then I kind of go to that phase. And the final phase is I almost imagine it as an abstract. The whole page is an abstract and go, okay, because we have to look because we read the whole pages once subconsciously. How do I make sure that, that, you know, your eye moves from one panel to the next? Do you think that the people that you collaborate with on these books are aware of how much you're thinking about these issues of composition? Do you talk with them about this at all? Uh, you know, not really a lot. <laughs> Um, some are, some aren't, um, it it really depends on how much they know of painting and drawing themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and some are highly knowledgeable, uh, and, and can, can notice, you know, immediately that, you know, like, you know, like there's a close up of the eye and because there's a moment that's, uh, being sold there, I, I highly rendered that eye and made real jag use jagged lines because he's saying something like, I hate you, you've cursed my life. And so I'm, you know, we want that intensity. So, you know, instead of doing soft, like kind of S or C curves with the rendering, maybe I'm using jagged lines into the eye and around the eye to give a sense of that motion. And some people catch that and some people don't, but they subconsciously, they always pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, what sort of conversations, we talked a little about this, but what kind of conversations do you have with your collaborators, with the other people in the uh, creative pipeline? Uh, do you talk to them on the phone or is it mostly just bouncing emails back and forth? What's that part of it like? You know, and it, it depends on the people you work with. Uh, we have, 
we have a cross section of new younger creators coming in and we have some real old time, you know, old school people. Um, some people just say, go do what you want to do. I love what you do. Go do it. Uh, and then others want to get on the phone and they want to go like, I was really thinking through this process. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually the best thing to do is to get on the phone and, Anytime I'm starting with a new penciler, I try to get on the phone. And if I can't get on the phone, I'll, I'll email them and go, you know, are you familiar with my work? Do you know what I do? Because, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm, I usually people come to me for a highly rendered look. And some people might not want that. So you want to make sure right off the bat, do you want this look or do you want something not as highly rendered? Uh, and then it's, what is your intent? What do you, you know? Tell me the kind of mood you want. That's usually what I tell my collaborators. Like, what kind of mood do you want? And then let me build from there. Um, and it's just, you know, you find what people are comfortable with. How do you end up assigned to a particular book like, say, All-Star Batman in the first place? Uh, is it the artist who requests you, the writer? Or is it just that you get assigned by an editor uh, after they find out that you're available or whatever? Uh, all three uh, I've, I've had all three happen. Uh, usually it's about building relationships with the people you work with. Um, on all-star Batman, I would say without a doubt, it's John Romita Jr. Brought me on that book, but it's a venerable uh, revered penciler in the business and been around for a long time. Yeah. 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 And I've been lucky to work with him for, for a lot of years and he is, He's a saint to me. I mean, he just, you know, go do what you want to do, Dino. He always calls mm-hmm. me Dino. Go do what you want to <laughs> do, Dino. Just go make it look good. Um, <laughs> and, and, but I've had other ones. I worked with Rick Remender for years, and he would pull me on projects. He's a writer. Um, and he would pull me on projects because him and I had a great working relationship. And I've had great editors I've worked with that have pulled me uh, f- onto books. Mm-hmm. So it's all about the relationship you create with, you know, people are like, you know, I like working with this person. He's going to deliver this kind of look. Um, I'd say a lot of times artists get a, usually I have a, a long time working relationship with artists and usually cause I can only do so many books. Uh, usually it's no more than two or three books at the most, uh, a month. Uh, it's usually less than that. Uh, if it's the highly rendered kind, um, and a lot of times once an artist gets with me, they, you know, we keep on working. Like John asks for me on every project. So that that limits like how many things I can do outside of that. Yeah. Um, you have been in this business for a really long time. You've been working, you said, for like 22 years since 94-ish. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, 22 years, As a yeah. colorist. Um, how has the uh, business of coloring changed in that time? Well, you know, I was lucky because when, like I mentioned, when I came in, they were first starting to use Photoshop three beta to color, uh, and before that, they they were doing a lot of stuff with uh, I forget the program, but it was this kind of mathematical vector program, and they'd have to color color code everything. Um, and Photoshop was the closest to painting, so for me, it, it was kind of perfect. So I came in right when they were moving something that was close to what I did naturally. Uh, and then it was just learning how to do, how to take Photoshop and, and do what you want to do. And I think it probably took me eight years before I finally, I, I remember finally I just said, I'm, I was trying to copy what everyone else was done, which was using friskets and lassos. When I first started, everyone was using uh, this lasso 
tool in Photoshop, which allows you to kind of select area and cut it off. So it's almost like you take a piece of paper and cut a hole. And then where you, where that hole is, you can spray paint in there, but it doesn't, doesn't affect anything else. And that was kind of how uh, comics were colored. And I think I was doing that for eight years and I was unhappy. And I just said, you know, I'm just going to color how I paint. Uh, and the minute that happened and I, and I could hear all these voices in my head saying, don't do that. Cause that's not how we do stuff in Photoshop and that's not how we color comics. Um, but the minute I changed over to that, that's actually when my career really started taking off and I became more hmm. of my own person. Um, but I'd say the biggest thing, you know, Photoshop's been there and the tools have changed. I think some of the biggest stuff is, you know, I used to have to have uh, FedEx people come to my door and have everything on drives and ship it to New York because I live out in Southern California. Or I'd have to run to the LAX at 12 o'clock midnight to make the last plane and fly it out to New York so they get the printing. Uh, is everything, you can send all the files through the internet now. And so you could be working up to the last minute and send stuff over the internet. Mm-hmm. I say that's probably been some of the biggest changes. And then I think in the last couple of years with the, you have like different tablets, like the iPad pro, you have different workstations that are now allowing you to be even more mobile. I think that's going to be the next big, next big change is how mobile we're going to start being able to be that you don't have to be locked into a big computer at your home that you can go to the park and and work at the park, work on the airplane. Mm -hmm. I mean, one just thinking as a comic fan, thinking of someone who's been uh, reading comics for for as long at least uh, as you've been making them, probably longer. Uh, one of the things that also seems like it's really changed in terms of the way comics are colored is is the kind of paper that comics are printed on and the way that they're printed. Uh, I, I don't know how much of that has happened in the last 22 years, but you know we talked earlier a little bit about the the bold colors uh, of of characters' costumes being partially a product of the limitation of printing technology in the you know 1930s 1940s when superhero comics were first debuting that's changed a lot there are a lot more you have access to more colors to more printing technologies but uh um have have there been any changes in the ways that comics actually get printed that affect what you do uh in the years that you've been in the business you know i i'm not knowledgeable enough on that i was I was spoiled because when I started at Image, Image was really pushing the coloring at the time in the paper, and we were working at high-quality paper at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time I went and started working at Marvel and then now DC, uh, they, they're they now pushing stuff. So I, I've been kind of lucky that way. I think there's less printers uh, now than they're used to, so I think there's a whole challenge manufacturing that – you know, you know, DC production probably deals with that uh, I am not familiar with. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess those are those are separate issues in any case. But what's it like when a book is printed? Do you actually look at the the finished product on the page? Do you uh, do you page through it uh, after oh, after a copy is done? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you know, the hard thing is is that that's the other thing is every printer prints slightly different colors. So I want to see immediately that the book looks close to what I planned. Uh, And some printing places will print, you know, you can send two printing houses the same files and they can print slightly different. Mm -hmm. So I get the books, I immediately look at them as quick as I can 
you know, I'll go out, you know, if I have to, I'll go out and buy the book the day it comes out just to check. DC is fantastic about this. They send stuff out to us the week before. Love DC for that. Uh, so I can immediately see if there's anything wrong because, you know, as one book's coming out, I'm working on the second or third issue after that. And if something's too dark or the colors are shifting too much, that can ruin a book. And that's one of the things I've learned is it's more in, in, in my end. For me, it's all about values. So for a long time, what I would do is I'd have on Photoshop, I'd have a layer and I, a black layer I'd put on top of all my other layers. And I'd turn on this, uh, turn it to color so I could see the pages black and white and make sure that the book would read if, if it lost all its colors and it was just black and white and values that it would read that way. Uh, so for me, values are really important so that if the color shifts from, let's say a blue to a blue red and it shifts everything else, it's still going to work value-wise. You're not going to lose stuff. You know, if I was working more impressionistic where it's about color shifts, not value shifts, you know, and you're separating someone by color shift and all of a sudden these colors shift radically, you're not going to have the separation that, that was happening before. So, you know, I love working, like when I paint traditionally by myself, I love working impressionistic, but when I'm working in, in comics, I make sure that I'm, I'm washing the values because, you know, color shifts can happen. And that's the other thing, like, I think is really important. Like, I'm at figure drawing every Saturday. I go to figure drawing, working with a live model, working on my figure drawing. I try to be out drawing and painting from nature. I like, go out and do, like, little landscape drawing and paintings and try to keep my artistic well kind of filled because you never mm -hmm. know. You know, when you, all of a sudden you're working on a page and you're having a flashback to something that you were drawing from life uh, just the week before. So when you look at a book and you notice that something's off, that the, that the values levels aren't, aren't quite right, um, you might make changes that affect future issues of that title. Um, do you ever go back and rework uh, an issue if when it's printed the colors don't come out right uh, for future reprintings of it? Or once it's set, it's set. Uh, do it sometimes, you know, if, if they allow you to do that. Uh, I I have done that. I don't get paid anything more for doing that. Um, but sometimes you, I I have been doing that. I think more and more of that's happening. Um, and there is there is a, a series that I want to go back and 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 kind of adapt a little bit, especially with how I see how it works on. Um, digital comics. So you can do that, you know, cause the, the monthlies come out, uh, you know, each issue usually comes out once a month. Uh, then after a, a arc is finished. So like for the all-star Batman one through five was one storyline. And when that's finished, we have a hardcover or a, a trade paperback come out. Uh, and so usually after you finish those five issues, you have a little time to go back and do any, uh, adjustments that you need to do. Um, and change some of that stuff. And I know All-Star Batman, there was some adjustment because issue five was so quick. Uh, we're doing the best we can. I was dealing with, with uh, my mother who was really sick at the time, going through cancer surgery. She's fine now. Uh, but we were juggling all that stuff during that last issue. So I think we, we went back and did a little bit more of adjustment when the uh, hardcover came out. I'll just say, you'd never know it from looking at the pages that you were you're rushing in any way. It's a, it's a terrific looking book. But <laughs> Thank you. In this series of working, we've talked with some of the other uh, folks in previous episodes. 
about the relative lack of appreciation that, say, inkers and letterers get from fans in the comics business. Um, do you feel like that is true for colorists as well? Do you get respect, admiration, love, a following from readers? Uh, I think it, I think colorists are getting more and more fandom um, because it's changed, and I think it's it's really evident how much uh, colorist brings to the page now compared to how they used to be. Um, so it's changing. I, I have people. I, I to me this seems silly, but I have people that tell me all the time that they buy books just because I'm working on it, and I'm like, why? But um, so you do get people that follow you more and more. I th- also still think that there's. I don't think there's a knowledge of how much work that there's done uh, in what we do and what we add. You know, it, it's hard because you know it, it's almost like being part of a band in the penciler. Uh, and the writer are kind of like the lead singers, you know, uh, and you're kind of back backing vocals and instruments and all that stuff. So, you know, they get to shine a whole lot and your job is to make them shine. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's changing. I think it could be a lot better. Um, but I don't, I, I don't go through feeling mad or anything. I, I feel lucky to have the job I have and have the career I have. Is it a financially stable line of work? I mean, maybe that's a dumb question, but I assume can someone make a living from from coloring? <laughs> for a, for a oh yeah, oh yeah, you can make a good living make, doing coloring. Yeah. Um, I probably not the way I do it. I'm I'm a little uh, slow witted this way. I tend to spend forever on pages. Um, I try to make stuff. I'm kind of crazy with what I do, but yeah, I, I support my family. I I I you know. Because we have kids with special issues, uh, my wife and I stay at home and we take care of the kids. And um, yeah, you can make a good living. You know, that's the thing. A lot of people don't realize in art. You know, they think art you can't make that much money on. But if you're an artist, especially you know if you're in the entertainment field, you can make a good living. You know, uh, there's so many things that call for someone to understand, and that's why also when I teach, I encourage people to learn how to draw, paint. Uh, sculpt, you know, learn all those things because you never know which way you're going to go. And I never thought I would be doing the job I'm doing. I just wanted to be the best artist I can. Uh, and I still pursue my own artistic uh, career or, or growth on the side. I have to. That's what makes it uh, makes it viable. And I think that's the thing. The longevity in a career and to make a living is I think that you cannot – you cannot just sit down and just go, this is how I'm going to work for the rest of my career. Ch- tastes change. Uh, art styles change. And you have to adapt with it. And I know and since I've been coloring, I think I've changed how I color three or four times. Not by anyone telling me to, but just more me trying to grow and get better and, and have, you know, be the best artist I can on the page. And I think that's what make, gives you longevity in the field is that it's someone who, who is constantly trying to grow in some way and trying to push. And you can make a really good uh, living doing this work. What's your favorite part about doing this for a job? Hmm. Working with the people. You know, honestly, that's the part I love the most. I think that's seeing... You know, if I'm just drawing for myself and painting for myself, I, I, I'm only influencing my own work. 
but I get to work with great people and I get to see uh, on all-star Batman, John's an amazing penciler and I get to see how he's acting. But then we had Danny Mickey on the inks and Danny is just a God of inking. And what he did on John was just amazing. He, and he, because of what he brought to that book inspired me to kind of change how I color. Cause I was so impressed. He was bringing this almost etching style. So I started bringing some of that into it and we were all three of us, feeding off each other. And then we had a great writer like Scott Snyder, who is just, you know, pumping us even more. Um, so it, it's, it's about finding that way. Yeah. Well, we'd encourage people to spend even more time looking at your work. Uh, thanks again for talking to us today. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about working. Our email address is working at slate.com. I'm a little behind, but I do try to respond to all of those emails. So if you want to talk to me, feel free to write. You can also listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. This episode wouldn't have been possible without production assistance from AC Valdez. Thanks also to Hannah Green, who helped record this episode. And a huge thanks to Clark Bull at DC Comics, who has worked tirelessly to connect us with the people that we've been interviewing throughout this series. Thank you so much, Clark. We really, really appreciate everything you've done. Uh, Finally, this episode uh, and this series was produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.